Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, last but certainly not least, you know how we do it here on the Intentional Conversations podcast. I want to give a formal introduction of our guest co-host today so that you know all of her accolades and all of her credentials and the lens in which she shows up to this work. And then we're going to have her to join us and then to greet this audience in her own way. And here is our guest co-host for today, Dr. Melissa Horn. Melissa received her PhD in modern U.S. and African-American history from Rutgers University. She has worked both in Canada and the U.S., helping to make workplaces more diverse, inclusive, and equitable. At Dialectic, Melissa drives client experience, serving as the client champion on all projects. Melissa's passion is working to solve the most challenging problems facing your business. Her ability to develop a deep relationship-driven understanding of your core business is unparalleled, allowing Melissa to cover new insights and then relentlessly advocate for solutions that are actionable, measurable, and effective. We are eager to get this intentional conversation started and I hope that you will help me in welcoming our guest co-host today, Dr. Melissa Horn, in your own way. Use the Zoom features, place some thoughts and sentiments into the chat, but let us let Melissa know that she is welcome here today and we really appreciate her being here. Melissa, how are you? I'm well, thank you. That's a, a wonderful welcome. Thank you. <laughs> well, fantastic. We're so glad you're here. So as I mentioned before, one of the things that we like to do as we start out our Intentional Conversations podcast is to have our guest co-host to greet this audience. And specifically what we're looking for is you can greet us in any way that feels comfortable, but we want to know what do we not know about Melissa just by reading her bio? What else can you share with us that helps us to connect with you on a deeper level? So share with us, Melissa. Yeah. Um, so what wouldn't you know about me? Uh, I am a mother. I have a um, 10 year old stepson and I have a uh, two and a half year old daughter um, and a dog uh, who I think I'm his service person. So um, <laughs> he's very needy. Um, but a bit more about me uh, as well. So I I've spent, uh, I, I grew up in here in, in Canada, but spent um, almost 10 years uh, living and studying in the US. Um, and I think that, uh, I, well, I'll call it living abroad, but it, it really living abroad um, and living in a different country um, really, I think has shaped, uh, shaped me and, and how I view the world and how I think about um, not only myself in the world, but Canada in the world. and um, uh, our relationship to other countries as well. Um, so that's a bit a bit about me, but I'm sure we'll, we'll we can chat a bit more too. No, absolutely. I want to bring my colleague Rachel in here because the reason that you're here today, Melissa, is because of the relationship that you have with Rachel. And so, Rachel, thank you so much for introducing us to Melissa and allowing us to be able to share her with this broader community. Um, so, Rachel, um, certainly greet this audience as well. Thank you for being here and for co-hosting with me today. Hi everyone and hi Melissa, so happy to have you here. It's great to, always great to have a conversation with you, Rachel. Could you tell yeah. us more about where you went to school and why you chose the school you went to when you came to the US? Yeah, so um, it's, I, I often get asked like, how did you, like you're from Canada, like how did you study black history? Like what, what led you to that? Um, 
and it's kind of a funny story, but um, I I was signing up for my uh, freshman year, um, a course in freshman year, and they were all out. And the only course available was uh, a course on civil rights history. And the professor who taught it had uh, actually gone to Rutgers and um, had studied under uh, one of the um, sort of legends in, in the field of uh, Black women's history in the US, Dr. Uh, Deborah Gray White. Um, and so as a young person um, who'd had, I think, a life that was uh, fairly privileged, learning about um, folks who were willing to die for um, rights um, that I, you know, took for granted on a daily basis was, um, you know, uh, I think it, it really, it moved me. And um, I became really interested in learning more about sort of the history of race and racism. Um, and so that took me sort of down a path around, you know, uh, what does that look like? And, and, and um, I, I became really interested in sort of the history of, of student activism, um, not only because, you know, I was moved by the, the students of the 50s and 60s, but as I started to look at sort of the history of race and racism in, in the US and the emergence of um, higher education uh, for uh, formerly enslaved peoples after the Civil War, I realized there's a, there was a, a, um, a much older history of student activism um, that had happened and um, I, you know, was lucky enough that uh, I was accepted at Rutgers where they have uh, one of the best um, black history departments in the country to, to, uh, to do that research and that work. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. It was, uh, it was very fortunate. So Melissa, we read in your bio the work that you do at a really high level, but I want you to unpack that a little bit deeper for us. Talk about maybe like the day in the life of the work that you do and, and, and how in which you support um, those, those individuals and organizations that um, find it appropriate to want to align and connect with you for your expertise. Yeah, so um, at, it, at its core, our company is a uh, custom e-learning um, business, but um, over the past few years, we have been um, uh, working on a product called uh, Learning Snippets. And the idea is, is that um, we realized that we were sort of part of this problem of where we were sort of doing um, these really limited engagements. People would come to us for unconscious bias training. I um, mean, we do an in-person training and, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And um, while in the moment, those trainings were really effective, uh, people had these aha moments, there was a sort of gap um, into, so I'm, I'm more aware now, but what do I do? Okay, I understand yeah. I have an unconscious bias, but how, how do I, how do I, like, what does this look like in the workplace? How do I stop myself or how do I get around that uh, now that I'm aware, you know? So what we did is we've developed um, training that sort of takes you from sort of what these concepts are to how now to practice inclusive behaviors um, in the workplace. So moving sort of from, yes, this awareness to, to action. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we found that uh, we had done sort of the, the scenario-based training in other facets of our, of our business. Um, in other places, we would um, deliver sort of, you know, these more in-person trainings and then allow people to practice the skills that we were working on. And um, much like, you know, other leadership skills, um, inclusive behaviors are skills that we need to practice. We don't right. all necessarily know um, what to do when we see someone 
uh, when we see a microaggression happening, um, when someone's committing microaggression, a colleague, we kind of all feel we've we've had right. these feelings, right, where we're like, oh, this isn't right, but we don't always sort of have the language. Um, we don't have the experience, uh, and and we're all often afraid of what uh, of saying and doing the wrong thing. And so, with the learning snippets, we're modeling inclusive behaviors through these scenarios to allow people uh, the opportunity to practice in a safe space, make mistakes. And then once they face these in, in the real world, they're better prepared. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to get my colleague Rachel in here to present the next question, but I do want to amplify what Rachel just amplified in the chat, which is your sentiments around inclusive behaviors or skills we need to practice. I don't think people realize that. It's almost like they feel like I need to either just automatically know how to be an inclusive minded leader and let that show forth in practice, but we have to learn those skills and then practice those skills, hone those skills. And so I appreciate you bringing that to the conversation. Rachel? So how can a business move more from awareness to action. I know learning snippets help with that. And yeah. how I understand learning snippets is it's like role play. So how, how does learning snippets help a business move from awareness to action? Yeah, so I think that, you know, we, we're part of, I think, a, a larger, um, uh, we play a small role in, I think, a company's larger efforts around diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, training is one part, one part. Um, you do need to sort of be aware, like we, I, I, I don't want to say like we shouldn't learn about awareness, but we need to be aware of sort of the policies. I think there's a place for policy, culture and, and training, and that helps to bring that all together. So we need to understand like what are, where are the gaps in our policies um, and, and, and sort of fix those. We need to sort of create those spaces, work on our company culture where we can have these conversations because um, part of it as well is, is, is the work that leadership needs to do to ensure that, that, um, that folks, when you know, once they are practicing these skills, are practicing them in an environment that is safe and inclusive, and is going to be receptive to that as well, right? So there's a lot of work that happens, and then when we move to action, then we're all practicing um, these behaviors that facilitate truly um, inclusive um, uh, workplaces. So you know, I think about this as um, I was thinking about this today before before I joined is that. Um, often people will say, well, I've done this, this training, so we're good. And it's like, well, but if you look at elite athletes, you know, they don't just show up at the NBA and say, okay, I'm good. I don't need to practice anymore. I've learned everything I need to know. Right. Mm -hmm. They're constantly honing and refining their skills. And, and this is the same with, I think, um, inclusive behaviors that we constantly have to practice and hone. And there's a, a myriad of different ways that, um, you know, that we can sort of that that we that we need to um, practice different skills. I mean, there's areas where I'm, you know, I think I'm I I have my own blind spots. I have my own areas where I'm not as um, well versed in the sort of uh, in the inclusion landscape, right? And so mm -hmm. there's always ways that we can continue to practice. Um, the other thing that when we that um, when we do these learning snippets is that there's certain folks that we you know uh, certain identities that we may not have have as much experience with. Right. And so a lot of this too, there's a sort of an empathy gap or understanding sort of the experiences of the people. But when we um, work through these different scenarios with people with different um, identities, we start to build empathy. Um, you know, I, a lot of people will say, well, I've, I've never met a trans person. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, through our gender identity snippets, you meet folks who are non-binary, um, who are trans, you know, and, and it sort of accelerates your, um, your empathy and your experience with folks with different identities as well. Yeah, I love that. I you think, bring it. 
and I think one of the things you said about the learning snippets is it, it allows people to learn alone, right? You, mm-hmm. you can take the time to learn without people watching and observing you. So you're not so concerned that, am I making a mistake? Am I doing the right thing? Because you're sitting with your computer and you're going through the scenarios and you're practicing and you're figuring out okay maybe that was not the right thing to say perhaps I should have said this and it's something you can do by yourself right yeah it is yeah the other cool thing though is that what we're finding though is that people are are sort of um as we're going through them as people are going through them they'll say well okay I know what might be the right answer and we think about this as sort of a good better best because there's so many nuances and you have to sort of take into consideration um a few things but they might say well I know what sort of the best answer is. And then I also know like what our company uh, would say is the best answer. And so, you know, they start to see like, well, okay, how can we sort of use these snippets to sort of address maybe some of the gaps that we have in our company? Because if our company says, well, we should be doing this, but we kind of know that the more inclusive uh, way would be to sort of uh, follow this path, it starts, starts to open up questions and ways of, uh, um, and, 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 and dialogue amongst people as well. So we do, we, so we encourage folks to not only, you know, go through and be reflective on, uh, as they do the snippets themselves, but to also talk about it in, um, in the groups, because a lot of folks are surprised that sort of what the quote unquote right answer is, um, uh, as well. Right. And, and, you know, the, the idea is that there is sort of, as I said, there is no right or wrong answer there. There are sort of you know, good, better, best. Um, and it's okay to sort of have gotten the wrong answer because that's where the growth happens as well and being able to talk about it. Um, and then sort of knowing now, well, uh, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but now that you know, you are able to sort of push forward in a, in a different way uh, as well. Yeah, I think about the the current state we're in as a society where um, I'm optimistic about us coming out of the pandemic, out of COVID. We're starting to see much more comfort with, um, with, with where we are right now. But I also believe that, and I place this into the chat, that some people are going to still maybe be um, they're going to favor more of those private learning opportunities, right? Because maybe mm-hmm. there's this, um, this comfort and feeling like there's, there's um, I don't have to be subject to guilting, shaming, and blaming. And that drives a lot of people away. It causes them to feel reticent about, you know, participating in these learning experiences around topics of DEI. Um, So I know that there's a a comfort level that some people have. And I think that it's important, the same way that we talk about just diversity in the broad sense, it's important for us to also diversify the learning modalities that we are making available to people because people receive and learn information in different ways. So I like that that's available. But I do want to talk a little bit about what are the implications of the pros and cons to the in-person training opportunities where you're in community yeah. with others and you can process what's coming up, your thinking. So just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I no way sort of want to knock that. Like, I think there's tons of benefit. Um, and, and, you know, we offer um, virtual training as well. The idea, though, is that what we're trying to do is um, uh, use a couple things that we know about learning science. Um, one, we're trying to overcome the forgetting curve. So, you know, well, I think we've all been to some sort of training where we just like, we're so energized and it's like, this was awesome. Um, you know, I feel the energy, but like, and, and that feeling stays with you, but the content, you know, your ability yeah. to remember the content fades, right? Or after you, an hour after you've already forgotten. Um, I think there's a stat uh, there around sort of how much we forget after an hour. And then it just yeah. continues to, to drop as we go off. So um, 
so there's that there is the feeling and there is sort of a I think it's really important to get folks together to have those moments where they can talk um, and they can share. And so we and there's those are those sort of awareness moments where it's like, okay, we all need to sort of understand like here are the key concepts here are the key terms. Here's how this operates. And I think in person learning is a great place to do that to have that community. Um, and I think it's just really important when organizations make time and ask people to make time for these types of um, uh, learning experiences as well, because I think it's really powerful. Um, but what we do is that we're trying to overcome this forgetting curve by spacing out the learning so that we're taking small chunks of information. Um, and then we often work with, uh, with other um, uh, DI professionals and consultants, and they start off with their, with their in-person training, and then they use the snippets to amplify and to reinforce what they covered. And so that's what we're doing. We're trying to, you know, hit key things and, and practice some of the, the key components of other people's training as well. So that it's like, okay, I remember hearing this and this, and this is what it looks like in action, right? You know, we talked about how microaggressions um, can, you know, can erode at a company's uh, culture and morale and, and, and um, but what does that look like in place? And how do I, when I see a microaggression happening or if I've witnessed it or heard about it, how do I approach it? And that's what we're trying to do is say, okay, here, make those connections for folks. Um, so I think it's really, really important uh, that we still have these, these group sessions because I, they are, they're cer certainly powerful. Um, so we're trying to get around the, the forgetting curve by, by spacing it out. Um, and then obviously uh, through the scenarios, by, mm -hmm. by have, giving people the opportunity to practice what they would have heard in the, um, in-person sessions, if they weren't already doing scenarios there, just another way to, to continue that training and that learning. All right. Good reinforcement. I love that. Rachel. Um, how we talked earlier on about your interest in, in, uh, African-American history and what you learned in coming to America, how do you use history and activism and science to create a DEI training experience? How does that yeah, all fit yeah. in? Could you could you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think what's really interesting, and in then that um, there is a rich history in, in both the U.S. and Canada of, of activism and ways in which um, we've been able to uh, affect change within systems. And so oftentimes we want to reinvent the wheel. We're thinking like we have to do something new, but there's actually really um, well uh, proven methods um, to affect change. And so the, some of the things I like to think about is when I'm designing training and when I'm, um, you know, uh, working with folks is to sort of use moments in history to say, like, we've been here before. Um, we need to, when we forget sort of the past, I think that's, that can be problematic. But like, there's a few things I like to do is one ordinary people have done amazing things. We may not know their names in the history books, but ordinary people have affected change. Mm -hmm. And, and so for companies, you know, um, I like to think, you know, you know, you and your company, if you're advocating for uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, you can affect a lot of change for the, for your coworkers, um, for the people that, you know, you spend a lot spend, you know, eight hours of your day with, and that's important. And so I like to use sort of these different ways that um, activism looks like a bunch of different things. There are all the things that make the news, but there's the small acts 
um, of resistance, the small acts of um, fighting for change that can make a huge difference in people's lives. So to me, I've, there's a lot of lessons from history that we can take and to sort of empower people in their workplaces to advocate for change um, and to push forward. The other thing is that, um, um, you know, there's lots of, as I mentioned before, the learning snippets draws on, um, you know, the sort of the, the recent science around learning. Um, and so we're always trying to ensure that as we're helping people to um, change the behaviors that we're pulling from the science as well. And then, um, you know, I think there's a few things that we need to think about in history is that um, it's important to sort of remember these things and to go back um, and, you know, why I think it's so important to continue to practice these skills is that, you know, there's many times where we have, where, where a change has happened, but we forget it, or we don't keep practicing, or we don't keep up with it. And, you know, we come back and have to do it all over again. So it's really important. And this is why I think, you know, I advocate for companies to truly invest in their DEI work in the way that they would in, in other professional development stuff, because, um, you know, it's not enough as I mentioned, just to get to the MBA, you have to keep practicing and honing your skills. Because if you don't, you're going to, you know, lapse back and you're going to have to build that up again. So, um, so that's kind of how I bring sort of my background to, to the work that I do. No, that's great. I love the science in this, Dr. Melissa. I love that you're bringing the science to, to this type of work. I think that it makes it even more effective. And you mentioned a couple of times um, to effect, you know, the need of effecting change. And um, really just a comment here before I go to the next question, but you know, sometimes there are organizations that we may encounter that believe the only way to um, affect change is through the learning and development, you know, the exposing people, um, expanding their, their, um, their awareness so that then they can put it into practice. But I think it's a parallel path. And that seems like it's also a part of what you subscribe to as well. We need not only the, the training and the learning, but equally important, we need to make sure that we can actualize that learning to affect the change by implementing policies and procedures to help shift the systems, right? And I think that, that's such an important point that you have raised in this conversation. And then the other comment is repetition is necessary. It is a reinforcer. We have encountered at NWC a number of organizations that have called upon us for, you know, development of these instructional design for DEI learning experiences. And they'll say, well, we don't wanna address that topic because we've already brought someone in before and we've already had a session on unconscious bias. And it gives us a chance to say, there's so much to unpack with that broad topic, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say that we even are addressing similar talking points and how in which we're delivering this information. The repetition behind it only helps to reinforce the need to keep practicing it, the need to keep it top of mind. And so I just want to encourage this broad audience that just because you've done a topic before, don't shy away from it. We need that, those reinforcements. And so um, those two comments I wanted to share. My next question is really about, Melissa, and I welcome you to comment on those thoughts too. But my next question is about how important is it for those who are developing these uh, learning experiences, whether it's online or even facilitating the work in in-person settings to have lived experiences around the topics in which they are sharing. I just wanna get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, so, okay. I want to go back to like just your first comment about, I really think it's important. I want to advocate that learning development is just one part of, I think of a holistic approach yes. to diversity, equity, inclusion. And I mean, I think about, um, you know, in my own research, the students didn't just 
you know, uh, they they advocated for one removing um, the white presidents and empower and putting in black presidents, uh, changing the policies in the schools. And then there was a whole education and training piece um, around getting the broader community involved as well, right? So, so you know, it's it's all these different structures. You need to have the policies, practices, and the people in place um, to ensure that that um, that your that your DI program is going to work. So it, it's it's not just a one or the other. It's it's all of these things um, that work uh, in concert together. And then in terms of sort of the yeah the lived experience, absolutely. I think. Um, uh, I think it's important and um, when we're developing training. So when we've developed uh, our learning snippets, um, obviously folks on our team have uh, different lived experiences and identities. And so what we've done as we're developing our scenarios is to go out to both subject matter experts and to folks with lived experience to validate right. the scenarios as well, because um, you know, there's only so much research one can do and so much, but unless you sort of have that lived experience, um, I think there, there, obviously there's, there's a gap, right, in that. So for us, it's been very important um, when we write a snippet on um, accessibility that we talk to folks um, who are in wheelchairs. Is this how you would want, is this, does this scenario feel real? Um, you know, if we're writing about um, uh, a, a snippet on neurodiversity. We speak to neurodivergent folks to ensure that we're capturing the um, uh, the challenges. Um, and for us, um, for my company, uh, we partner with folks um, who are uh, subject matter experts and, and folks with lived experience as well, yeah. because uh, that just strengthens uh, the work that we do. We're really good at developing e-learning, but there are folks um, out there who have lived experiences and who can, you know, support work if we're talking about, you know, gender identity, um, if we're talking about LGBTQ plus issues, um, if we're talking about anti-Black racism, we, we partner with folks because I think it's really powerful. And um, it also supports their businesses as well, which I think is really important as well as supporting, um, and in this space, like supporting the folks who, um, you know, who, who are doing the work as well, so. Thank you, Dr. Melissa. Um, I wanted to say to the audience, please um, share your questions in the chat and we'll go to questions um, after this question. And Dr. Melissa, I wanted to pivot a little because yeah, when I first met you and we were speaking, um, one of the things that I say is that um, white supremacy is not just an issue we have in America. It's a worldwide wide issue. And I can say that coming from Zimbabwe because I experienced white supremacy in Africa. And when we were having a conversation, I, I mentioned to you that at least Canada is not as racist as America. That was my sentiment as a person who lives in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And so I would like for you to share with the audience a little bit, a high level, uh, uh, yeah, uh, high level what we spoke about on that day when it came to my comment about at least there isn't racism in Canada. So uh, yeah, yeah. I think for many years, uh, Canada, um, we promoted the idea that we were we were not the US, right? Um, there's a, uh, we have a national narrative that we were the, we were the place of the underground railroad. This is where, um, you know, uh, uh, formerly enslaved people, you know, came to, to free themselves. Um, and so it's a wonderful narrative, but it's not true. Um, and, and I think the, um, the, 
the murder of George Floyd um, sparked, similarly in the U.S., a um, a sort of national reckoning here in Canada. Um, it there it was a catalytic moment where um, a lot of uh, where we realize that we have to confront anti-black racism in Canada. Um, and you know, this, this has been missing in our textbooks. Um, you know, as someone who uh who spent uh decades studying or more studying um black history in the US, I was one of those people who was woefully ignorant of my own history here in Canada. Um, and it really wasn't until partnering with uh with other folks here um in Canada that I learned about our country's history. Um, so we had segregation. Um, you know, we we had, uh, we have, and we still have white supremacist groups. Um, it is very real in the workplace. It is very real in the curriculum. Um, it is uh, not as overt. Um, it is, you know, very much sort of um, woven within our systems which almost make it, you know, even more insidious because it's very hard. You have to really dig deep and, and rethink, you know, how do we, um, uh, yes, yeah, there we go. Uh, Rachel saying this is structural, absolutely. Um, we, we have definitely told ourselves a, a good story, but I think um, more and more we are uh, learning that, that, you know, anti-Black racism is, is very real in Canada and we have to address it. Um, uh, it's that our, that rosy history that we've told ourselves is just simply not true. It is fabricated. And it goes beyond from what you shared with me, it goes beyond just the anti-Black raci um, racism. There was also what was done to the indigenous people within Canada, right? Yeah, we're, we're also having a moment of reckoning around our colonial history um, and, uh, you know, looking at not just how colonialism um, operate in the past, but the way that colonialism operates um, in our current systems as well. So uh, similarly, you know, um, it, it's again, structural, it's within our, our curriculum. Um, it is very much in the way that our uh, business practices operate. Um, again, it is, it is uh, sort of rampant throughout um, uh, our country, but we are, I think folks are beginning to, uh, to sort of come face to face and look at what, how do we decolonize businesses? How do we decolonize these relationships? And what does this look like? Um, and, you know, we're sort of, we have, to, you know, I know that people start to think like, oh, this is hard, you know, but it's like, no, this is the, this is it. This is the moment where we have an opportunity to, to really change and to start to um, dismantle these myths um, and these, you know, these, these stories that we've told ourselves to, to forge a more equitable um, you know, present and future. Yeah, before we, I want to stay right here before we shift to our audience questions um, and not to get too far off of the broad topic that we're centering today around the effectiveness of, of DEI training. Um, but as we're talking about anti-Blackness um, racism, there are many that are of the persuasion that that is an issue that only exists here in the States, right? You know, so we can, you know, name a number of countries that I know we've been in conversations with, with clients that have a global presence that will often share those sentiments. And when we dig deep, we find it to be quite the contrary. You know, it's almost like Canada had a good PR story, right? But here's really the truth. And we're seeing that play out right now, even as we think about the war on um, Ukraine 
And there's these great sentiments around, we all need to stand in solidarity around the Ukrainians. And yes, absolutely we do. Um, but some are of the persuasion that calling out the anti-Blackness racism that's occurring is um, maybe insensitive to what the Ukrainian people in general are dealing with. But again, so many of us that are in this space are saying there's a both and here. And we have to hold that middle and we have to call them both out. And I just want to give you a chance um, to just share your thoughts and sentiments about what you're seeing and, um, you know, how this is applicable, perhaps, to this broader conversation that um, was was started with the Rachel's question of tell us about Canada and, you know, the racism that exists there or the lack thereof. And we've been able to really address that. So share with us, Melissa. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's interesting. Um, Canada actually has the largest uh, Ukrainian population outside of the Ukraine and, and, and Russia. So, um, so definitely the events are are hitting close to home. And and I would agree. Um, you know, I was on I've been on Twitter, and there's a lot of folks who are saying like, yes, we can stand with Ukraine, but we must stand against um, racism and specifically anti-black racism and. Um, and even just the, you know, the way that the media is covering uh, the story of refugees and, and the story of the, um, uh, of, of even just the way that we think about uh, of the war, right? And, and it's raising a lot of different questions around how wars in the Middle East are covered, how war um, on the African continent is covered, right? The way that we sort of, you know, news folks are saying, well, you know, they're using very xenophobic, very racialized uh, rhetoric and language that um, you know, glorifies, I guess, the struggle of Ukraine, which I don't want to minimize, but also then, um, but it, it brings up tropes of, of black and brown people as being sort of less than and less worthy of our support and our help. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, I think we need to call this stuff out because we need, we need to hold the media accountable, we need to hold ourselves accountable, and we need to think about how we have in the past thought about uh, war and refugees and who deserves our support, who's deserving of our support and, um, and, and thinking about how we can um, hold space for two different ideas, right? It, it is okay, as you mentioned, to support um, the injustices and, and, and war against the Ukrainian people, but it is also okay to, to show how, um, how black and brown students are being treated as they're trying to leave the country as well. Um, and we also have to look at the fact that there is, um, you know, a uh, Europe is experiencing sort of, uh, uh, you know a lot of white supremacy as well amongst their leadership. Like this is just a fact and a reality. We need to we need to address that um, as well. So, yeah, I'm with you. So, do we have any questions from the audience at this time? Michelle, I see your hand is up. Great, let's add you to the spotlight. Thanks for being here. Share your comments or your questions, please. You're muted right now. <laughs> I think that was the most that was the most uh, popular comment that I said when I used to teach. You're on mute right now. You're on mute right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you for reminding me, and thank you always for having this fabulous show. You know, I had a few sentiments when you were talking. I'm a Canadian myself. I lived there for 35 years, and it's exactly what you said. Very insidious and very, um, you know, nothing spoken about. Everything is under the rug. So, you know, going back to talking about, you know, the indigenous people, you know, we have to remember that if, like you said, if it's not brought up in the media, if we don't hold ourselves accountable, 
we have to be able to change the narrative and bring it to light so that we know who the first Canadians were. You know, children were banned from using their indigenous languages. You know, schools were unsanitary, children were malnourished, many faced neglect, physical abuse. You know, thousands died, but this is not the history that, you know, that we've been told. And I think it's really important. And I'm happy, you know, Dr. Melissa Horn, that you're here and Dr. Nika White, that you're here just for we can talk about this because it's something that's very, uh, I can't even find the word. It's, it's, it's something that needs to be told. Yeah. You know, we need to know and understand that this is what's been going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, I was, uh, I think in one of my conversations with, with Rachel, I shared that, um, you know, when I was doing my research, people would say, oh, you're from Canada. Oh, okay, right. And, and, you know, I'm now that, you know, knowing better now, I, you know, and I would have, I sort of traded on that. It's like, yeah, I am, I am from Canada. We're not like the US, right? And, and, and because that national narrative has, is so powerful, it is, you know, we have really um, uh, embraced it. And, and now, you know, so, you know, uh, 20 years later, I now say, yes, I am from Canada, but, you know, we have, our, we have racism, we have, our pro we have problems, and this is what it looks like, right? And I think it's important to sort of, to acknowledge that, you know, while this, while this was something, you know, that, that sort of, I guess I benefited from, I refuse now to, right, to sort of, to let that national narrative continue and to sort of, you know, let that, um, let myself benefit from that as well, because, uh, you know, we, we need to, you know, this is why history is so important. We need to know our history um, mm -hmm. so that we, we don't repeat those same uh, mistakes. Absolutely. Dr. Melissa, I think, I think when we spoke, you shared with me that they had just discovered um, bones of, of, Indigenous children. Could could you share that story with, with the audience? Yeah. So for those who um, who are are joining from the U.S., um, so uh, what, there was a practice of uh, residential schools in Canada, and that was um, where uh, Indigenous children were taken from their homes um, to schools set up often um, through different religious denominations to um, to, to strip their culture and their language from them. Um, and what has been uncovered, uh, well, what has been known for a while, but has been finally sort of brought, or the media paid attention to it finally, um, was the graves, uh, the unmarked graves of uh, many children who, who died um, while uh, in the residential schools. And so uh, we are currently sort of trying to reckon what that means as a, as a country, how do we, um, you know, what does, you know, we have a truth and reconciliation, uh, 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 we have truth and reconciliation here, and what does that actually look like to be, you know, not just a document, but how do we live that, how do we as a, as a country, how do we as individuals, uh, how do we in business um, live truth and reconciliation, and so, um, it is something that that has been known about, but has finally just, I think, really captured the entire nation's um, uh, interest in. And I, uh, so I think, you know, we've got lots of work to do. Yeah, heartbreaking. 
So Sharon Long, who's a part of our community today, she placed a question into the chat that I want to amplify now. Thank you for your question, Sharon. How can we avoid stepping into explosive political conversations in a business setting or even educational school setting when we broach these topics and trainings? It's interesting. So I was thinking about this and, you know, it's an old feminist, old like 1960s uh, feminist term, you know, the personal is political. Um, and so there are, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks, uh, their very identity is, is politicized. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, it's not necessarily, a lot of these topics have become politicized when they are very much um, not to be political, right? So, you know, I think about right now, uh, you know, my heart aches for the trans kids in, in Texas, uh, the parents of these trans kids who are, who are trying to support um, their children and are now, um, you know, facing prosecution, um, investigation around this. Uh, these are things that, um, you know, people are bringing themselves to work and it, we keep talking about bringing your whole self to work. And so if we try to ignore or look past or say, you know, we're, this is like where the colorblindness comes into play. Like we, we see color, we see these things, we cannot minimize the way that um, people's identities impact um, how they are at work. And so we need to sort of confront that, you know, um, you know, people with caring responsibilities, that is part of their identity. We, we talk about that, right. You know, like people like moms, they, they talk about their kids at work. It's not, it doesn't feel like a political thing, but but I'm saying like we, we bring ourselves to work. And if we truly say that we want a workplace that is inclusive um, and that we talk, you know, that, that where people feel like they belong, then we, we kind of have to confront these things because people are bringing them to work, whether we see it or not. Um, you know, we often talk, people say like, we shouldn't talk about religion at work, but religion is a huge part of people's identities. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it, it's, it's a shame it's been politicized, but, um, but it doesn't have to be political, right? These are just part of people's identities. Um, you know, the, I, I feel for the kids and for the, you know, in Florida where the, you know, we've got now the don't say gay. Um, mm -hmm. The law of the land is that, um, you know, that marriage equality, we have marriage equality, right? Um, you know, I was working with uh, the National Center for Lesbian Rights uh, while they were fighting for that case, um, you know, in, in 2013. And so many of the people that I loved um, you know, benefited from, from that, um, from the, from, from the Supreme Court's ruling, right, against DOMA. So, and then at that time, that was highly politicized, but that's people's lived experiences, right? So mm -hmm. we have to, I think, um, support folks and, and be willing to, to talk about these things. Um, and they don't have to be, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a left or right Democrat versus Republican thing. These are just, these, these are people, um, and I love that I saw in the, the, uh, the, the chat here, human rights is not political. Absolutely. Great. So just opening up space and time, if there are others who would like to present a question to our guest co-host today. If so, feel free to raise your hand or just simply unmute yourself at this time. Okay, well, I hearing... Oh, go for it. Yes. No, welcome. I'll add you to the spotlight. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, so I have a question. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I do talk in a lot of diverse spaces. And one of the issues I have is being in spaces where everyone is Caucasian. 
So it makes it really hard for them to relate to some of the stories that I'm uh, speaking on and telling, especially when it comes to transgender. And a lot of states now are passing uh, laws against transgendered youth. Um, I just saw the more recent one in Iowa, uh, where it's the laws being signed. Uh, and it's just little girls, but they're all little Caucasian girls around a table. And it just looks like a representation of just white men around the table without any um, diverse or disability or any other um, sort of representation. So how do you um, make people empathize, you know, with, um, with that? And how do you make them then um, want action for change? Yeah, so one of the things that we, we do with the snippets is, um, is that we create scenarios around folks with different identities and you're you know uh, there's you're right yeah a lot of spaces especially here in Canada if you're in certain corporate spaces uh, everyone there's a lot of folk, almost everyone's white right like there's lots of places where that is that is the the norm um, and folks will say well you know I don't and it's very easy um, to sort of travel in spaces where everyone looks like you. And, and so, you know, you don't have to think about these other issues. Um, but, but what we're trying to do with the snippets is, so in, uh, in addition to sort of practicing, practicing inclusive behaviors, we're trying to expose people to um, folks with different identities, with different intersecting identities that they may not necessarily um, be out meeting in the, in the world to develop that empathy. Um, because you can, even through the scenario, um, you can sort of create that, uh, th those sort of emotional connections. You can read a scenario and really feel like, oh my gosh, what, what an awful thing, right? And, and, it, and it, you know, for, and so for a person with that identity to understand their experiences as well. Um, so in those, that's one of the reasons why we, we, we try to focus on different topics and cover different things to, um, to expose people to different identities that they may not experience in the real world and to develop that empathy, accelerate that, that, that experience. Um, so that when they do see things in the news that they do have, they can, you know, empathize with that and say, this is, you know, that the, they can recognize where uh, injustice. Mm -hmm. I and, so appreciate just, that question. It, it's an important question. And um, go ahead, Rachel, I want to give you a chance to step in here, but I appreciate that question. Thank you for asking. I, I do appreciate that question a lot. And I don't want to say your name incorrectly. Is it Sehar? Am I saying it correctly? Uh, Sehar. Sehar. One of the things to amplify what Dr. Melissa said, but one of the things that I do is I focus on the things that are similar for everybody. So everybody has a mom, has a dad, you know what I mean? So you try and connect on the things that make us human beings. And there's so many things that make us human beings before you start looking at the differences, right? So everybody has to have had a mom, you know? So try and begin with connecting with them with stories where they understand right? Or where we're all the same. So just those basic relationships, grandparents, you know, familial things to get people to, to begin to pull them in and to begin to see you as human, you know? So that's one of the things that I would say. But um, Dr. Melissa, could you tell us a little about your, your podcast? I had the, the good fortune of being on your podcast. You have a podcast that you have. And Dr. White is going to be on it soon. Yes. Um, yeah, and I'll just tell everyone that Rachel currently has uh, the record for the most downloads. Um, we, we chatted about intergenerational intelligence. Um, but my podcast is called Just One Q, 
And the idea uh, behind it is that um, we, we try to tackle, well, it's not really fair because I always ask like huge big questions, but we try to tackle one really important question. Um, and I speak with uh, thought leaders and uh, experts in the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space. And the goal is to uh, leave folks with, with things that they can take away from the um, podcast and start to implement in their personal lives or in their work. So uh, really sticking with this sort of moving towards action and, and practicality and, and um, being able to apply learning to their daily lives. So um, I've been doing it for a couple of years now. Um, the goal is to keep them short and impactful, kind of like the snippets. Um, so they're 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and uh, my, my, my whole goal is to really uh, focus on, on our guests and their expertise, um, because I, I really try to search out folks who have uh, unique perspectives, who are thinking about DEI and challenging um, the status quo and uh, pushing me to continue to learn. Um, and so that's sort of um, the impetus and, and the, the goal behind it. And so that the folks who are tuning in, um, you know, can, or I'm only asking for about 15 to 20 minutes of your time, and that you know that when you leave the podcast, you're going to have something that you can uh, take away and start to uh, implement in, in your life uh, and in your workplace. Love that, Melissa. And the team has placed into the chat a link directly to um, your, your podcast. And so we do hope that you all will check that out and be inspired and empowered. Um, I'm watching the time and we are almost at the top of the hour, but I do want to go back and present a question because um, I I hear a lot from organizations, um, particularly individuals within organizations that want their companies to be much more intentional about um, deepening its commitment to DEI. And it just seems natural to start with education. So they ask questions like, how can I get my organization to fund some type of DEI learning experience? And so how can individuals charge Melissa with spearheading DEI initiatives within their organizations, advocate for the decision makers, those C-suite leaders to, to say, yes, we're going to fund DEI training. What have you seen as some best practices? Oh man, um, well, I think, you know, I, I will say a lot of the times it's having those really powerful um, uh, practitioners come in and deliver um, sessions on inclusive leadership. Having, um, ha invoking those aha moments with leaders, realizing that they don't, actually may not have the skills to to handle these um uh to handle certain situations um and so oftentimes i i advocate starting with leadership because they're the ones who need to be need to buy in and to fund this and so um i think often having those really having a great um speaker come in and um have that uh have those conversations uh with folks um I think, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of data out there now. Um, people are leaving jobs where uh, DEIB is not a priority. It's happening. Mm -hmm. They're going to jobs. Job seekers, you know, want, are looking for this. And um, in sort of to win, to win talent, it has to be, it has to be a priority because people have, you know, with, with the pandemic, we can live, we can work wherever we want, you know. Um, and so those companies that are fighting this um, are going to lose um, talent. They're not going to be able to attract talent. Um, and, you know, 
it, it, DID is not just sort of, you know, it's, it's, it is, a, it, it is not just a nice to have, it is, it's an imperative at this point. And so the folks who are kind of um, behind this are going to see that their talent is leaving. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, oftentimes, uh, yeah, as you wrote uh, there, um, Nika, that like making the business case um, is important to, to do that. Um, and as we get there, we realize that, you know, having organizations where you have inclusive culture uh, means you're gonna have folks who are um, more productive, who are more happy, it's going to improve your business. So not only do you wanna retain, um, be able to attract and retain, but you want your, your folks to be, um, you know, working to their, their, their fullest capacity and, and feeling successful. So um, there is that business, there is that business case. And, um, you know, people often think that like, there's a huge um, gap between inclusive leadership and just what makes um, grid leaders. Often they're one in the same things, you know, being able to have difficult conversations, um, being, being empathetic, um, being um, open and, and uh, being humble. All of these things that make, uh, that lead to inclusive leadership make a good leader Right? And it's practicing that other, it's just looking at that through, the, through an equity, equity lens. Um, you know, a, a, so if I'm a good leader, I need to be an inclusive leader as well. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, yeah, I love this, it's a muscle. Yeah, these are things that you need to practice and they're different, you know, they're, they're sort of, if you're always working on your bicep, your tricep's not gonna look very good. Or if you're always working on your tricep, you know, you gotta focus on, on your bicep as well. So I think um, it's, it's an imperative. And for folks who are looking for funding, I mean, um, if you, if you find the right trainer, if you find the folks who are doing um, the work well, it catches on. It really does because yeah. um, there's almost like a freedom or something that happens when, when, when an organization sort of goes through a bit of a, a struggle and then, and then they realize like, oh, we can talk about these things. And not only can we talk about them, but I feel confident and I feel comfortable talking about it. Um, that's, I think, is often the fears that people are afraid of saying the wrong thing, afraid of doing the wrong thing. And they actually just don't feel confident. And so training can help folks um, be confident and comfortable talking about these things. And that sort of once, once we're able to have these conversations, once we know that it's okay, um, you know, we're not going to shame and blame people, we can kind of go about our business knowing that like, this is okay, this is this is part of our workplace. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it almost like, I don't know, I find that often companies will just say, oh, this is so much better. I feel better now that we've done this. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to make that business case um, for feeling better, but um, ultimately there's lots of stats and I, you know, always happy to share those with around like the ROI of, of, of DEI. Um, yeah, thank you so much for your response. I'm going to let Rachel have some final remarks to close us out and then she will yield to you to give us um, your final thoughts that you want to leave us with, Melissa. But thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Melissa. This has been such an enlightening hour. Thank you for sharing with us that history, activism, education, um, repetitive learning is very important. And um, we're down to the top of the hour. Could you give us your final thoughts before we head out? Yeah, I just want to, um, I just want to say, you know, that, uh, and I know we've talked about this a number of times, but I really do want to say that um, inclusive behaviors are, is a skill and, and it's something that can be taught and can be learned and needs to be practiced. 
Um, so if you're not there, that's okay. Um, it's important to just start and, and, you know, that, that discomfort that the, um, the confidence comes through practice. Um, and so that is sort of the, um, that's the message is that these are skills that can be learned, um, and, and, and need to be practiced. So I want to thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Dr. Melissa. Practice makes improvements. So thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.